Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the bit where we sort of exfoliate any guilt we might be carrying. It's sort of like feminist confessional. And then we just sort of, you know, we leave it on the table. Real doesn't matter and we leave it on the table because if you carry guilt, it turns into shame and that's luggage. <laughs> you know what I mean? You mean, if you carry shame, it's luggage. It's like carrying luggage. So what we're going to do is um, dump our <laughs> luggage on you. Exactly, uh, we're leaving our luggage here. Okay, ready? You right. go first. Oh, I really want you to go. Oh, no, I'll go first. Okay. Right. This is luggage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a feminist, but after 30 years on Earth, I am now ready to admit that my vagina lips are too big. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly feel lighter. (laughs) You're right, I should have gone first. Can I just explain? Oh, please. (laughs) Please. I want you to sit in this uncomfortable mess with me for a couple of of seconds. No, No, it's basically feminist Jack and Ori. (laughs) Are you sitting comfortably? No, apparently. No, I'm not. And this is what... So, I've been in this writer's room for the past couple of weeks, and I was sat there, and it just... It keeps getting caught. It just keeps getting caught. They're not, like, droopy. They're just plump. And... We're all about bo- body positivity. I love it, you know. And but I just there was a point where I sat there, <laughs> sort of like trying to negotiate myself, and I just thought, "Fuck this! I don't. I want them to be smaller. Fuck it! Like I love me, uh, woo, but make them a bit smaller." I just was getting pissed off. It hurt. <laughs> I fucking told you I was bringing luggage. Go on, Deborah. <laughs> Top that. <laughs> it's hard to know in which direction. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I was recently messaging a wealthy man in the comedy industry, and he said, I'm going to buy your book. And I said, you don't have to, I'll give you one. And he said, okay, can you post it to my home address? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, can you sign it for my daughter? And I was like, sure. 
Oh, no, Deborah. What are you going to say? You can't withdraw it. You can't just go, no, then. On your own. I'm so careless, I would have. <laughs> I know. When you talk to him. This is just, yeah, this is just true. I'm a feminist, but I flirted with a shopkeeper on Thursday to get a 20-pack of bin liners for free. <laughs> I'm going to need more information. Well, I was on the phone and uh, to my boyfriend, and uh, so I picked up the 20-pack of bin liners, and I was uh, still on the phone, and then he stood in front of me, and I thought, I'm not going to stop this conversation. So I put it down, and I gave um, uh, what can only be described as this face. (laughs) (laughs) And he went, no, no. And then I took it. And my boyfriend was like, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? I was like, I got this 20-pack of bin liners. That's a true story. I just smiled. Basically, I just smiled at man. And he gave me bin liners. It's not the most romantic offering, but it is terribly practical. I needed bin liners. I mean, you know, I'm a feminist, but when John Hamm announced this week, I am interested in playing Batman, I quote tweeted, I am also interested in John Hamm... (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. You and John Hamm. Mm. We will be together at some point, I think. I don't deny it. I'm a feminist, but when Susan McComas sent me a text earlier today, one of my feminist butts is to do with vaginal lips. Just warning you. Firstly, I didn't know it was going to be that. (laughs) And secondly, I thought, so it's going to be that kind of show, isn't it? (laughs) You know, we've got fancy theatre guests coming. (laughs) That's why I did it. <laughs> we have got fa- we've got very fancy theatre guests. Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Susan McCloma, and very special guests Emma Hexen, Lara Rossi, and Samuel West talking about taking control of the narrative. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White and today I'm joined by Susan McComer to talk about taking control of the narrative. Um, how was your week, Susie? Was it a guilty week or a feminist week? It's been a really feminist week. Has actually. it? Tell me more. Yeah. Well, I act primarily, but I'm now in a writer's room for a show. Oh. And so this is... A, a writer's room is basically they get loads of writers to come up with ideas. So you're literally sat around a table for hours going, oh, maybe this character can do this, or maybe this character can do that. And it's really exhausting. And so I'm just trying to just infiltrate uh, the group with my feminist agenda. Ah. So I'm always like, maybe she can Should. be a she. Maybe she. Maybe she. Maybe she. I tell you what, maybe she. could. And that's all I'm doing. That's good. That's very good. So obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, we said this when we were doing next week's news, the TV pilot, we had an all-female writer's room. And the show was sort of a topical news show, but we said from the top, it's kind of a Trojan horse for feminism. But then halfway through, I said to them, this Trojan horse, I mean... There's feminists on the horse, around the horse, (laughs) and the horse itself is a feminist. (laughs) It's not as Trojan as all that, is it? It's just some feminists going up, going, we've got a horse, let us in. (laughs) We've misunderstood the Trojan part. So I love that you're Trojaning away. And that's starting to sound like condoms now, and I (laughs) apologise. 
Is that why it's Trojan? Hold on, Trojan condoms is a bad <gasps> name because it shouldn't no. be letting anything in secretly. <laughs> I just realised oh that. Oh my god! That's is a terrible it like, name. Oh, this is a condom. Oh, we got we got a dick. Oh, hide the dick. The dick's in. Like it's <laughs> what it is. I, I now <laughs> I now suspect they've poked a hole in one in every hundred. <laughs> And that's the one where the horses all leap out once they're inside the citadel. I've heard the worst writer's room stories. This is like the loveliest writer's room. In fact, it's quite difficult because we're all feminists in the room. And so I'm like, well, maybe. And everyone's like, yeah. Oh, that's like, good. Oh, yeah, but oh, then maybe she, she could do this and she could have agency with like decide things. And they're all like, yeah, it's a really happy space. So, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. I'm really enjoying it. And also, like, trying to make a difference in television, like, from the beginning. So, like, let's create characters and stories rather than being an actor on set going, how do I make this piece of shit work? <laughs> Which brings us, actually, to our theme today. <laughs> I knew it. Pieces of shit. No. Uh, <laughs> our theme today is taking control of the narrative. Because I think so much of our life is we live in somebody else's narrative or we have to filter our own experiences through the narrative of the white straight man on the screen or even with feminism, sometimes I feel like we're, we're resisting the patriarchy's narrative rather than living our own. Do you know what I mean? Like rather than, and I, I'm now really coming into this place where I feel like I feel like this wave of feminism more and more, what's exciting me is that we're not just pointing at something going, we don't want that and bringing hammers to knock it down. We're bringing bricks to build the world we do want to live in. Yeah. And we're starting to build spaces that we want to be in like this, which is so exciting. And I think that's why we wanted to talk about this today, taking control of the narrative and being the author of our own story. Yeah. That's all I have. <laughs> it's like being in the room again where someone says that and everyone just goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's exactly sure. like being in the room. Welcome to the stage, the wonderful Susan Wakama! Hello, guys. What I'd, I'd like to discuss with you, I had a little bit of a think on uh, a job that I was on this year. I was working with a director, and like most directors, he was middle-aged, white and male. And, you know, some of them are good. Um, but this one wasn't. We had a bit of a tough time with this dude. And there was a group of us who were a bit like, you know, like, why, why, do, why is this guy? Why has this guy been trusted uh, to helm this TV show? And we were told that the network, the channel, they called him the Golden Goose, which really... It really fucking pissed me off for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, like, the idea of a Golden Goose is stupid because Golden Goose, they're not rare. They don't exist no. so the idea that someone's a golden goose is that there's something that doesn't exist is really strange but before my feminist awakening i had to be honest with myself and i have fallen for that illusion of the golden goose somebody who's like the messiah who tells you what's what and you believe it so i was just thinking about all the times that this has been the case the first golden goose that i ever met was a teacher called mr p that's not his name. I really want to say his name. I was at primary school, and I went to school, primary school in South East London. It was a really mixed group of kids. We had white, black, um, all different places from the diaspora, predominantly working class. And we had this uh, teacher called Mr. P. And um, he was 
quite strange because he used to, what he used to do on a Friday, which was seen, like, thought of as revolutionary, he used to get all us kids down to the school hall and he would make us sing war songs, which was, it was odd for primary school, like six-year-olds singing like, there'll be bluebirds over. I didn't know what I was, it was weird. And he used to also... <laughs> And it was, it was really strange. And he also used to have a portrait of himself in sort of like army get-up, holding a gun that he used to put by the end of the piano. Anyway, I sniffed this out. I was like, this guy is bullshit. And he used to think he was really funny. So one day, this guy, Mr. Pearson, with the gun. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have a gun. Jesus, he didn't have a gun in the school. Um, he... <laughs> different story uh he used to think it was really funny and this was around the time of like tony blair so tony blair things will only get better it got worse but um he was telling a joke stood up at the board going oh tony blair uh, his name sounds like tony blair and all the kids started laughing and i didn't six-year-old me was like and he went susan what why don't you find my joke funny and i said just don't find it funny and he was like right okay Anyway, I turned to my friend. She was like, why didn't you laugh at Mr. P's joke? And I said, Mr. P is a womble. <laughs> That's what I had. I was like, Mr. P is a womble. Mr. P heard this. And so he approached me after the lesson and he said, Susan, uh, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to go around uh, at lunchtime with this bag, bin liner. There we go. And... <laughs> I want you to fill it up with rubbish and I want you to bring it to me at the end of lunch. So I was like, fine. So I went around at lunch, was like, oh, put your rubbish in there, da 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 da. And then after lunch, I went up to him, I was like, Mr. Pete, got your bag. And he went, what, what do you think I should do with this bag of rubbish? And I went, I don't know. And he went, maybe I should throw it over spiteful little girls like you. <laughs> Golden Goose, apparently. This guy who shouted at children. Anyway, so that was Mr. P. The next Golden Goose that I met uh, was a guy... I'm having to change everyone's names. Let's call him very famous film director man. And I, um, <laughs> I auditioned for this guy, and he was really sweet, my first audition. But he did one of the things that I really... I always spot, which is when somebody has... Uh, a Cockney accent. They put on a Cockney accent when I meet them. This has happened quite a lot. I meet someone and go, hello, I've seen you in interviews. I know what you sound like. And he did this. Oh, you're right, my old mucker. How you doing? Oh, apples and pears. No, no, Mary Poppins. <laughs> I was immediately like, you don't need to do that. I don't sound like that. Um, but he did that. But I thought, okay, what he's doing, he's trying to like bridge a gap from um, his golden goose land to like my lonely ooh, apple seller land um, so I let him do it but he was really nice, he was super nice, he was really nice and then I got a recall which means I got called back for another audition and uh, he wasn't so nice this time so I walked in thinking he's going to be like hello my old muck I've got to see you, I've just put up the chimneys how are you? Like fucking something like that and <laughs> he was not he was sat there stared at me. I sat down. I was like, you're right, my old mucker. And he didn't say anything. And uh, he looked at me 
Anyway, all right, stop. So rude. Anyway, so I started, and then he stopped me, and he went, do that again. I was like, right. So I did it again. Halfway through my speech, he lit a cigarette. I was like, I'm sorry. Are we now in like all about Eve? Like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? Who are you, Cary Grant or some shit? Like, whatever. So he's like, <sighs> blowing smoke all over me. I was like, you fucking fucker. Anyway, so I finished, and he went, okay. Um, so we'll be holding uh, dance auditions uh, next Wednesday. Uh, next Wednesday uh, was actually the day that I was opening a play. I was opening a play in Manchester. He wanted to hold dance auditions in London. So I said, oh, um, oh no, no, that's the day that I opened my play. And he went, well, that's your dilemma, isn't it? So in the room, he basically said, I don't know what he was doing, but it was just the weirdest shit. And then I just went, you know what? Thank you very much. I, I guess you're just telling me that I've not got the job. And he went, yes, like that. And uh, anyway, so so I've met all these like really weird figures, like people who are just strangely cruel, but for whatever reason, everybody else thinks that they're amazing and they're instantly trusted. Anyway, I had this experience last year. I went to go and see a play. It was starring these three actresses, all of colour, really tremendous show. So afterwards, I was in the bar and I saw one of them and I went up to her and I went, oh my God, you were absolutely amazing. You were, you were amazing. Like, thank you so much. She went, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And she burst into tears. And I was like, oh, right. And she went, oh my God, I've, I've watched you on TV and no one looks like me on TV. And I just want to say that it's just so amazing. And I, and I was just standing there going, oh my God, am I the golden goose? <laughs> <laughs> am I the fucking Messiah? Shit. Oh my God, this feels so good. Anyway, um, I ended up casting her in my first project. So what the moral of the story is, ladies and gentlemen, is that messiahs do exist and that you must listen to them because they'll give you a job. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. It's Jess Foster Q here. Sometimes I co-host this Lush Guilty Feminist. That's where you might know this voice from. I have my own podcast. It's all about eating called Hoovering. So I'm just interrupting to tell you that I've got my first ever live show, live Hoovering in Manchester with stars from Coronation Street, Bake Off and the smash hit podcast All Killer No Filler. Naturally, they're all women brilliant ones at that. There will be eating and laughing occasionally at the same time. Come and join us. It's Saturday 6th of October at lunchtime. Of course it is. Go to manchesterpodcastfestival.com and if you use the secret code vacuum you get 50% off. Please, can you welcome to the mic, Deborah Francis White! So, I want to talk about the narrative. Often, the stories we tell, we believe, it depends who's told them. There's two sides to every story, but there's usually more like 105. (laughs) Many of you will know, because you listen to the podcast, I live with a Syrian refugee. He lives in my spare room. He's like my brother. His name's Steve Alley. And uh, he said to me uh, today that he was talking to a Syrian guy who's been here much longer, who's been here for years. 
And he said the conversation was going really well. We were really bonding about home and everything. And then he said, um, and then this guy really stomped in a wheat field. Now, this is an Arabic idiom, which means to mess everything up. It's a fairly new idiom based on Theresa May's Brexit attempts. Um, no, it's not. It's not. It's an, ancient, it's an ancient Arabic idiom. But I feel if we'd spoken fluent Arabic, we'd have been more alarmed when she confessed to that. Um, <laughs> this chap, the way he stomped in the conversational wheat field was by telling Steve he had voted leave. And Steve said, why did you vote leave? And he said, well, there were all these Eastern Europeans coming here being a drain on the NHS. And this is a strong narrative. It's a, such a strong narrative that even immigrants believe other immigrants are the drain. Now, of course, that is one side of the story. If you have 10,000 people more here, you have 10,000 more people needing the NHS. That is a valid side of the story. There's one side of the story. But the other side of the story that this Syrian chap is not taking into account is that there are currently in this country 40,000 unfilled nursing vacancies. And part of the reason for that is a lot of Eastern European nurses have gone back. A, feeling unwelcome, and B, the pound isn't worth any more than the euro anymore, so there's no point, they might as well go back. That's the other side of that story, that immigrants don't just use stuff. Immigrants make stuff. Immigrants build stuff. Immigrants are the very people working in these places. So if you allow 10,000 more people into the country and they all get a job, they all have a lunch break, and that means they all need a sandwich, and that means we need 100 more pret a manger <laughs> which is the true cost to Britain of the refugee crisis. <laughs> Clearly, we have enough pret a mangers But some of the people who work in those prets will be refugees. And those refugees will serve you and other refugees sandwiches, which wouldn't have been made and that economy wouldn't have been created unless the refugees had come here. But they're also serving nurses and doctors who are refugees. And this is just one way of growing your population in a country where people die 100% of the time. 100% of the British population will die at some point. We do need to replenish. And at some point, you won't be able to work in a Pret-a-Manger anymore or be a nurse or a doctor because of being dead. <laughs> and you'll need someone else. And I know there's an argument that refugees might take a while to learn the language and cross over their qualifications or learn a new skill and get on their feet. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Sometimes it's months, sometimes it might be a couple of years before they're really being productive. Or sometimes they're a stay-at-home parent raising a next generation who are going to do those things. And that is true. It takes a while. I mean, probably, you know, they don't necessarily get the working papers for a few months. All of that, that is absolutely true. But all of those things also apply to the other way of growing your population. Babies. They turn up and they are immediately a drain on the NHS. <laughs> Before they, they haven't paid a penny in tax and they're born, we're in a fucking hospital. That's right. They don't speak the language. They have also... I mean, it's going to take them a good five years to learn even a basic grasp. I mean, they're not fast learners like the refugees I've met. I met some refugees who couldn't put two words together and now they're sort of, you know, doing hip-hop. And, you know... Babies take longer, lots, 
a lot longer. I mean, babies admittedly have also had to leave their home, which has become inhospitable at short notice. Um, suddenly, unwillingly, oh God, I'm suddenly somewhere else. I'm going to have to get on with this and learn. But they are a drain. We need to be clear for 18 years. Minimum, really. 18 years of, of or at least 16 years where they're just... What are they doing? They're using schools, they're using roads, they're using buses. I mean, what are they doing? And it's a terrible way to grow your population. I mean, babies are just useless refugees. They're incompetent, very slow-moving refugees. Now, Steve... Ali, who lives with me, he's been in the UK for just over 12 months and he has had his papers, his working papers, for nine months. And many of you who listen to the podcast will know he's got his own jewellery business, which is called Road from Damascus. And he's actually started a line of guilty feminist necklaces. And there's some that say guilty feminist. I'm wearing one now. And uh, some that say woman in Arabic, which is really, really beautiful. And it sort of slightly looks like a W at the same time. It's very, very beautiful. And he's giving half the profits to his mother's project in Turkey, because she is also a refugee. And her project helps female refugees get a craft in a place where perhaps, you know, they turn up and they don't speak the language. And the other half is for his continuing education, because he's got to go back to uni, because his education was disrupted. And he said yesterday was the very first time, because of the amount of orders that he had that he had to hire somebody to help him polish and put the necklaces on chains and that kind of thing, box them up. And he said to me, very proudly, he said, I counted it, it's nine months before I started employing a British person for £10 an hour. What's your nine months old able to do? (laughs) Who's it hiring? I know what you're saying. Oh, no, but I've... She's not crawling yet, but I read in a book that those that are slow developers are really much cleverer. No, they're not. Um, (laughs) Your nine-month-old is useless compared to Steve. That is... She or he is contributing nothing and will continue to... What I'm saying is... I'm suggesting it. We we quit babies for five years... (laughs) And we replace them with refugees. This is, it's, it is a better model. It's a, clearly a better model. Just saying, you've just got to rethink the narrative sometimes. We, we have all these assumptions because, you know, babies write the narrative. <laughs> They're in charge of the story with their big, cute eyes going, oh, look at me, I'm adorable. <laughs> They're a drain. <laughs> When the Daily Mail work out what a drain babies are, they're going to go to town. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I think I've been thinking about in terms of the narrative is the Me Too movement. Sean Penn, I think yesterday or the day before, announced on a chat show, sitting next to a disconcerted Natasha McElhone, who they were asked if this project, if any of the female characters have been somehow inspired by the Me Too movement. Natasha said yes. Sean said no. She's wrong. She's wrong. Shut up, Natasha. What do you know about your own character when I, Sean Penn, am here to explain it to you and others? He's a pleasant man. (laughs) What he said was the Me Too movement had gone too far, and I've heard this a lot. I've heard this a lot. And, you know, sometimes it pops into your mind, but every time I think that the Me Too movement has gone far, I do think that the previous women have to put up with any shit movement had a really good run. (laughs) Excellent run, that did. Uh, That went on, that played, that went on a long time, didn't it? Wide, deep, long, went all the directions for millennia. (laughs) 
And I feel like the Me Too movement's been going for about 25 minutes. Already, it's gone too far. It's gone too far. <laughs> it's gone too far. And men are now saying, I don't know, I don't know how to talk. I don't even know. I mean, you don't know these days. You don't know these days. You don't know these days if you can grope a woman in the workplace or not. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know if you can put your hand up a woman's jumper on a bus. It's got to the point where you don't know whether you can go in a woman's face. It's just, you don't know, it's confusing. You don't, I'm scared to leave the house. I'm scared to leave, I'm scared to talk to a woman. I certainly wouldn't employ one. Not these days, you don't know. Do you know what I think we're witnessing? Most of the men I know I'm not responding to the Me Too movement like this. They're going, oh, God, finally, this is really good. Yeah, because the women I've talked to have said this has been going on, and yeah, no, I think this is a really good thing. Some men, some men are saying, not all men, some men <laughs> are saying, I'm scared to talk to women now. I don't know what to say to women anymore. I don't know. And I think what we're witnessing publicly is some men developing empathy in public. <laughs> Because what they're saying is, I don't know and have never thought to ask or even look for small social cues how what I say lands with women. I have no idea if all my life I have been routinely speaking to women in a way that to them seems lascivious, sleazy, bullying, unnecessarily and uncomfortably flirtatious. I don't know. And now I'm scared to talk to women now because now I don't just have to worry about what I say and do, but how it lands with them. I now have to wonder how they've heard it and how they've felt about it. I'm scared to leave the house. <laughs> that is what we're watching. Isn't that amazing? Men who have never, ever wondered are now saying, that thing I did in 1978, how did she feel about it? That thing I did when I was 15, did that hurt her? Has she carried that with her? The way that I pushed myself on that woman yesterday or the thing that I said this morning, now suddenly, and I find, I'm finding in comedy sometimes now, men are checking in with me at the end of a gig and going, did that, was that good natured between, you're all right with that, you're all right, you're all right. was that all right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was really good natured, it was really fun. It was a fun bit of fun. They got, oh, that's good. <laughs> Do you know why they're doing that? Because now there's a consequence for their behavior. That is how empathy is developed. The reason they didn't have empathy in this particular direction, I'm saying they don't have empathy at all, they do. They have empathy for people they love. They have empathy for other men in the workplace because that's how they've got jobs and sustained them, by behaving in a way where they're rehirable. The place in which they have forgotten to build empathy is the only place in their life where there was no consequence. And that is why they have never thought to ask. And here's the thing. Almost 15% of men in a recent survey, this was like a year or two ago in the UK, said that they thought a woman could not withdraw consent in the middle of sex. And here's the thing. What they're really saying is, how am I meant to know? How am I meant to know if she suddenly doesn't want it or how she feels about this? How am I meant to know? Why should there be a consequence for me? But I feel of all of the times, you should be asking the question, how does the other person feel 
It is the time when you have a part of your body in theirs. <laughs> Peak time. Peak time of all times. Definitely that time. If a part of your body is this is not an annoying loud business call on a train that Sean Penn's making somewhere. Like, oh, now I have to worry about how all these bozos feel. And I'm trying to do a deal. It's not that. It's not that you're inside somebody or trying to get inside somebody. Either way, you've got to be incredibly clear how they feel. And if you've had a sexual encounter where later that person has said to you the whole time, I felt like this, or halfway through I suddenly started to feel scared or hurt or uncomfortable or this wasn't right, and you didn't notice you have not developed enough empathy for the kind of people you like to sleep with. There's no other way of looking at that. You need to be checking in. And sometimes now people say enthusiastic consent. And I'm like, the trouble is, sex doesn't always feel like a girl guides rally. It's always felt like enthusiastic, like a pep rally, like, yay, sex! I love sex! This sex is so great! Please do more of the sex to me! It's not... That's not what it feels like. Sometimes it can be intense and still. Sometimes it can be... Sometimes you can want someone to tie you up while you say no. And that obviously has to be communicated incredibly clearly. And obviously there has to be a withdrawal of consent word. And I actually even think the word consent isn't right. Because consent is something you do when you're not really desiring of something but you're kind of going along with it, like a neighbour putting a fence on your side of the... <laughs> somebody, you consent to ramblers walking through your garden because you're on a path. You don't want it. I think consent is the wrong word, and I think enthusiasm's the wrong word. I think we need to be looking for signs of engagement in our sexual partners. It's engagement. Are they with you? Are they looking at you? Have they checked out? Or if they have checked out, is that what they like to do? And is that part of it for them? And if you think, oh, we'll ruin the mood if I ask, that's okay. It's way better to ruin the mood than to have your part of your body in a part of someone else's body when they don't want it. Better that you develop empathy by checking in. Much, much better. Men are developing empathy, some men, in this direction. Women have always had to have empathy in these situations. We've had to, it's been trained into us. If you go for an audition with Harvey Weinstein, you cannot be thinking, don't know how he took it. <laughs> if he put his hand on your knee in a restaurant, don't know what he was thinking. You have to be thinking all of the time, is he wanting more here? Is he going to not cast me if I pull away from this? How can I make him feel attractive but not actually sleep with him? If I withdraw and I leave, am I going to get blackballed from other parts? We are always thinking about it from men's point of view. If we are on a date, we are always thinking, what does he expect here? What does he want here? Does he want what I want? Does he want more? Does he want less? We are always thinking that. If we change our mind about sex, we're always thinking... How do I get out of this? I don't want to anger this man. What if I make him feel emasculated? What if this turns nasty? We are always, always men thinking about it from your point of view. Empathy has been 
drummed into girls since we were small. Everyone has to like you or someone might hurt you. Wherever in society there is a power imbalance, there is a lack of empathy. Somebody powerful has forgotten to ask, what is this like for you? And we need to start building empathy. And we need to start building it everywhere, online, places like Twitter. Do you know else, who else have to be taught empathy? Babies. <laughs> Hashtag babies, not as good as refugees. <laughs> babies wake you four, five, six times a night. Do you know why? They don't give a fuck about you. I was thinking about it from your point of view. They don't care. They vomit on your face. That's how little babies give a fuck about you. They are not empathetic to their own mother. They lived inside their own mother. They don't, they don't care about her. If she is asleep, they will wake her, then vomit on her, then pee on her. They will just keep going in a loop. We have to teach children empathy. Have you ever seen a very small child who maybe can't even talk yet, like a refugee can, and snatch a toy from another child? And they're not trying to hurt the other child. They've just seen a toy they want. And they snatch the toy, and they're so focused on the toy, they don't notice that the other child is crying. And if you're a parent or a carer, you say to that child, oh, she's crying now because you took her toy. You need to give that toy back, and you take it from the toddler, and you give it back, and you say, if you want to use the toy, you have to ask and see if she's okay with you taking the toy. Maybe she'll share it with you if you ask nicely, or maybe she, she wants it for a while, and you have to wait. We teach as parents and as members of the community, children empathy. And we create consequences for them, like taking the toy away, or if they push somebody over because they just don't want them there. We, we uh, that, you've got a toddler, haven't you? Yeah. We send them away to another room, we take them out of the situation. Consequences build empathy. And that is why Me Too is powerful and strong and must continue and has not gone too far. <laughs> Hashtag refugees better than babies. Thank you very much. Hello, Guilty Feminist. It's Deborah Francis-White. I just wanted to let you know that Jessica Foster-Q and I went to Calais last Monday. We spent time with the Women and Children's Centre and we met so many amazing families out there. The CRS are slashing people's tents pretty much daily at the moment and they desperately need blankets, pushchairs, tents and sleeping bags. Please go to helprefugees.org to find out how you can donate things you already have, buy things especially for them on the website, or donate your time by volunteering. If you'd like to look at the Guilty Feminist necklace collection made by Steve Alley, go to road-from-damascus.co.uk. They're very beautiful necklaces and they make lovely, lovely Christmas presents. Also check out Felicity Ward and Grace Petrie's websites to find out when they're touring to a town near you. And finally, we don't sell advertising on this podcast. We don't ask for money. The only revenue that we've got is from the ticket sales, but we always make sure that we pay all of our guests and everybody involved well because it's a feminist podcast. 
our only staff, this means uh, Tom and me. And so if you ever email me and I don't get back to you, I'm so, so sorry. I'm just so busy at the moment. I've been on this book tour, which brings me to the book. We really want to keep doing the podcast every single Monday and maintain the quality and not take breaks or not put out repeat episodes. And the way that you could help support us do this is to buy my book, The Guilty Feminist. It's in Waterstones. You can go on the Waterstones website. You can go to any independent bookshop, your local bookshop or amazon.co.uk if you must and buy it. And if you could buy it now, that would help us maintain the podcast all year round. It's had some wonderful reviews and I'm very proud of the book. And I'd really love you to support the podcast. If you wanted to buy one for yourself or uh, one for a Christmas present, it would mean everything to me, but also it would help us keep the podcast coming. So if you could pause the podcast and go and do that, I would be very, very grateful. Back to the show. It's the looking that does it. I walk on stage, the first thing people think is, how old is she? How hot is she? How fuckable is she? That's how we're taught to look at women on stages. That's how we're taught to look at women. You walk on stage, you think, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? So what do we do about that? Dismantle capitalism and overturn the patriarchy. (laughs) I see, but in the short to medium term? Dismantle capitalism and overturn the patriarchy. (laughs) I do wish you'd stop laughing at things that are perfectly fucking serious. It's a grand ambition. Do you believe in it? What? Do you believe that the patriarchy exists? That there is a power structure in place in this society that seeks to systematically oppress women? I... And that you are a part of that? I... You don't think it exists? I think... I think young women are angry for a lot of different reasons. And I think one of those reasons is that they feel disenfranchised. But I'm not sure that's any different from, say, issues with poverty or class or race or... But as a man, do you recognise yourself in the mirror as a power holder? Do you have a boyfriend? Brilliant. That is brilliant. I just mean... I'm just interested how this position... How your how this political stance operates in your personal life. There are men that get it. And that's your boyfriend. Do you dominate him? You aren't going to answer. Should I be answering that? I thought we were having a grown-up conversation about sexual politics. You raised the subject of rape, and now suddenly you're pretending you're coy. It feels a bit... tricksy. Do you dominate your wife? Very good. I imagine you do. I imagine she's younger, less intelligent, and heavy into her aesthetics, so that the majority of her status is tied to the ever-ticking time bomb of youth, making it confusingly inevitable for you when you fuck someone ten years younger in five years' time, if you haven't already. Or maybe she's in on it. Maybe she loves the powerlessness as much as you love the power, and together you prop up the patriarchy to your heart's fucking content. You're above aesthetics, then. I try not to place my value there. Easy to say when you're 24. What do you suggest I do? Rip my face off? You could try a little humility. 
You're right. Young women don't have enough of that these days. I'm not sure they do. Jesus Christ. Being oppositional to everything all the time, being so aggressive all the time, undermines your argument. Take the note. I'm not putting together a convincing argument. I'm saying what I believe to be true. You don't find older men attractive? What? Indulge me. You are nothing but indulged. <laughs> Why don't you find older men attractive? I find the fact that they're attracted to younger women repellent. That's politics, that's not desire. What we want and what we believe to be right are different things. No, it's desire. You can find something sexually attractive even when you find it politically offensive. I don't find it offensive, I find it pathetic. The vanity and ego of older men needing the attention of younger women to prop them up. It's pathetic and it's very hard to fuck someone out of pity. You've spent a considerable amount of time with me. What? This evening. You, you asked me to. Didn't mean you had to. I didn't restrain you. You said you could do something about what was on stage. That's I'm why I'm just I... saying there's obviously something about sparring with older men that you clearly enjoy or we wouldn't be here. It turns out if you want to get anything changed in the world, sparring with older men is part of the fucking deal. Doesn't mean you don't enjoy it. Trust me. If there was any other way to get things done, I'd do it that way. I'm going to get my tube. You tell the director of that show from me that theatre is sacred. Should be these, these spaces communal and, and civic and made to heal us when it's... And he's using it to reinforce his... He's using it to get off on things and that makes me... Angry. Yes, I can see that. You don't recognise me at all, do you? Should I? Please have a big round of applause for Lara and Samuel. And Ella Hexen, the writer of The Writer. Hello, um, I'm Samuel West. I'm an actor and sometimes a director. I'm a feminist, but in what is laughingly called my career, I make most of my money by representing the patriarchy. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of false money to say what has laughingly called your career. You're a very famous and successful actor, Sam. I mostly play damaged aristocratic people next to whom brilliant independent women can self-actualise. <laughs> I feel more self-actualised just sitting here, Sam. There you are, it's I working. Do. I'm getting a, full of, a flutter of self-actualisation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ella. Uh, hello, I'm Ella Hickson. I'm a playwright. I'm a feminist, but I occasionally find a very convincing market argument sexually attractive. <laughs> Say that again? A very a convincing market what? argument. Market argument. What do you mean? Like people that really, really like nail the idea that capitalism is unavoidable, that everything reduces to the market. It's just a very good argument, and everyone goes, God, no, but we're all living it all the time. So they're just the, they win, because they just go, the world is living it. 
And so it's, yeah, sort, it's my favourite argument because I can't always win it, whereas the other ones, <laughs> mostly I can win. <laughs> and you find what being, sorry, trounced in an argument about capitalism sexually arousing? I occasionally find being trounced in an argument sexually arousing because it's not, oh. like, all the time. <laughs> I love that. So on that, so you have sex twice a year. <laughs> With dickheads, yeah. Great. Can't win. Generally in a penthouse in Canary Wharf. <laughs> With some chap who runs a hedge fund and is <laughs> you couldn't possibly introduce to any of your lefty friends. I see. And Lara. Hello, my name is Lara Rossi, and I am a feminist, but I forgive my dad everything and give my mother a really hard time. Oh, <laughs> Which is so clear true. by the fact that I just said, Dad and mother, mother. So I want to say, Mum, I actually really love you loads. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> my mum's going to wish I said that word. Yeah. <laughs> you are a father, Sam. I am, to mm. two daughters. And are you, uh, this is not the topic... I suppose it is sort of the topic in a way because you're having to raise them in a world where you would like them ideally to create their own narrative and you understand that the world that you live in, especially because you're in show business, which isn't always as explored in this play and the Me Too movement as very egalitarian or an easy place for women to live. That's exactly it. Well, I'm glad we've done no, uh, oh, all right. that. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> although they're not going to remember me as the one that... Um, blue bubbles with them. I've taught my daughter to read. She's four. And um, that, she loves it, but it's a long, it's a long and difficult job. And um, she didn't like all of it. You should have got a refugee. They're really... <laughs> yeah. You're living the dream. I'm, I'm, completely, I'm completely convinced by that argument. Yeah. <laughs> Steve um, Alley, I don't, he came to me fully formed uh, saying he, <laughs> he, used, he uses words... I swear to you, like his English is a second language and he uses terms like gender expression and stuff like that. It seems ridiculous. I have to say, my eldest daughter has just uh, started nursery, well, proper school now. And uh, she didn't for four years and I'm quite into gender-neutral clothes and gender-neutral toys, let toys be toys, let clothes be clothes, both campaigns I'm, I'm behind. Did all that and, you know, took her to football and bought her dinosaurs and everything and that was all cool. She's still into planets and dinosaurs and football. And then suddenly when she gets back from nursery, she starts talking about princesses and unicorns. And, and I called my brother, who is a teacher, and said, um, I'm a bit disappointed about this. And he, she, and he said, look, it's not about the princesses. It's not about the dinosaurs. It's just that that's what the girls in her class are talking about. It's not intrinsically that she likes uh, unicorns more than dinosaurs. They're both the same. But if that's what people are talking about, then that's what she'll pretend to be into. There's a bit in my book about this, and I think we are in danger of, as feminists, going, my daughter likes to dress as Superman, yep. and your daughter likes to dress as Elsa from Frozen. And it's like, well, they've both got magic powers. Yeah. No, what? Elsa's cool. Sorry, Elsa's why cool. is Superman better? Elsa is cool. Uh, yeah, but no, no, but I'm just saying, like, like sometimes we think femme things yeah. are not as good yes. because they're femme things, and actually yeah. femme Elsa things are... magic powers. Hmm? Elsa doesn't have magic powers. One of them does. Yeah. Who's the one that can freeze? Who's the one that can wait, freeze? Wait, Anna. Wait, 
we, it's really important to get this Elsa clear. Does. Elsa, Elsa does. does and Anna doesn't. Who? Okay. Elsa she does. Like, and Anna doesn't. Elsa doesn't. Does. Yeah. She, doesn't, she can't. She frees things. Yeah, it's just can. like, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I just wanted to tie that. What can Superman do other than fly? Just matters. Super. Don't you all right, fine. <laughs> Batman super. can do fuck all. Yeah, Batman, Batman. Batman can do, but that is fair. He's Batman, just rich. Batman is not a superhero. He's just rich. Batman has no power. No. No, he just dresses up in a rubber suit. Fuck him. Fuck these guys. Iron Man. He's just got money. Is Iron Man just got money? No, he's got that heart thing, actually. No, shit. No. Yeah. yeah. But heart. also, he is played by Robert Downey Jr., who... So that helps. I'm with Ella on this one. If he tried to tell me that my economic models were wrong, I would listen. <laughs> You'd get right in his back cave. <laughs> Let's talk Broken. about the writer, because it's such a complex and interesting piece of theatre. Lara, Hello. let's go to you. What drew you to this part? It made me passionate again about theatre. <laughs> it had died a death. And I thought to myself, and this is a bit, I don't know, but I thought to myself, if I don't get this and I need to start reconsidering my career choices. <laughs> Basically. Wow. If this, well, I just thought, if this kind of work's going on and I don't get it, then I need to start really th- rethinking what the hell I'm doing. Wow. So if Ella... So basically... It, Ella, did you have a hand in casting, Lara, or was that down to the director and the casting director? Uh, no, no, that was a joint, yeah. Her <laughs> so, audition was totes emoji. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you did cast her, because otherwise we may well, have lost her. I like, to... looked at Ella and I went, this is fucking amazing, and cried at Ella. She did do some... She I did, did. Oh. I actually cried. Not in character, just as me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, um, so no, it just that's really, a strong pitch for the job. It, it was. I was just like, I give it to me, otherwise I'll stop being an actor. So. <laughs> I'm going to do that. I must work. Well, it does work, yeah. Shit, that's yeah, what yeah, I guess we're going to do. Yes. Can I say <laughs> something? If there, if there are any actors... Um, listening, I'm sure there are lots. Uh, I felt the same way you... Ella, Ella wasn't in my audition. I felt the same way about the play, and I knew that I hadn't got the part I'd auditioned for. And as I left, I said to the casting director, can I read for that other part? And they said, oh, it's doubling with the boyfriend. And I said, oh, so you're going for somebody quite young. And they went, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that hasn't worked. Fuck, I really like this play. And then one day into rehearsal, when I was mid-audio book, in some studio, I got an email from my agent saying, would you like to play those two parts in the writer? I said, when do they want me to start? They said, yesterday. <gasps> I said, fuck yeah. Did somebody young drop out, Ella? I don't, I've never asked this question. No. <laughs> what this happened? Is... No, we just didn't find the right person until we knew who the right person was, which was Sam. So always ask when you're leaving about the other part, because twice I've done that, mm-hmm. and I've ended up playing the part. If you what? know you haven't got the first one, and you really want to be in it, Ask about the other one. But, there sweetheart, there isn't another female part in nearly every play. <laughs> so I do see that this is great um, advice shame. for men. But there I mean, are two really good ones in the room. Oh, no, yeah, but sure, but Ella wrote it, so this is a different <laughs> sort of play. 90% of the plays that get put on yeah. have one part for I'm a woman, blushing, if yeah. you're lucky. <laughs> if you're, you're lucky, there's one part for blushing. a woman. Sam, Sam, are you glad that you're here? <laughs> you're Soul the man. woman on Mock the <laughs> Week, I don't know what to tell you. Ella, can you describe the play a little more for the audience who hasn't seen it? So we saw that opening scene, and the opening scene is a young woman leaving a theatre and she ends up engaged in conversation with an older man and they have this debate about what should and shouldn't be theatre, which turns into this debate about sexual politics. Yes, so the end of that scene, which is the first scene, is that he offered her a job and made a pass at her at the same time when she was much younger, when she was at a festival, no less, and he's since forgotten her. 
And you sort of end it there and then on walk the real director and writer and the real director and writer sit with the guy that plays the director and the lady that plays the writer and they do a panel discussion about the scene that you've just seen. And the director is very patronising. The male director is very patronising to the female writer about what her little play is really about. And the male actor does some lovely stuff about um, taking up quite a lot of their time to explain how much of a feminist he really is uh, (laughs) (laughs) and how enjoyable intersectional politics really is for a white guy. So that happens. And then you sort of see the writer, the real writer, go home to a domestic environment and you look at how, like, female artists operate within conventional romantic, heterosexual romantic setups, and you see how both the sort of emotional life and the practical life of being a female artist doesn't really operate inside a domestic setting. And then you do, there's this mad wacky bit uh, where she goes off to the forest and sort of imagines like a utopian place, a sort of like a space where, much like this room, um, where you embody the politic of your imagined future and what that might feel like and you sort of what the architecture of that might be socially and politically. And then you see a rerun of the male-female domestic setup, but with a female-female domestic setup. Um, and it sort of makes the argument via an elaborate double-ended purple dildo that um, that power differences the work of capitalism. It's less to do with gender per se. So it doesn't really matter if it's a woman and a woman or a man and a woman or that oppression is a capitalist construction and that is how sex operates often and that is how money operates and that's certainly how money wants sex to operate on screens and on stages. And it works both um, formally and in terms of content, which is my boo. And it's sort of the argument that Hannah Gadsby makes in The Net that men don't have... I think she says something like, you don't have a monopoly on the abuse of power when you have it, you arrogant fucks. It's just that women very rarely get power and that's why we're not known to abuse it very much. But too much power in anyone's hand over too sustained a period that can't be taken away without that empathetic loop going on is very much the problem. And so you're sort of demonstrating that actually... In a same-sex relationship, those same power dynamics can play out. They're more like in the sort of the desired future in the island. That was basically the pulling point, to want to be in something. I really, really have thought a lot about what we're talking about tonight in terms of narrative and how much energy do we really invest in the imagined um, space where we're no longer in reference to oppression. So how often do we really just take a space unapologetically and just exist without constantly bouncing off, oh, I have to sort of fight this Mm -hmm. thing. And that was turning those pages. I thought, oh my God, this is actually part, the beginning of that conversation. This is the kind of work Mm. that I want to be involved in. And that's amazing, because you weren't in that, that wasn't, you were in. No, I'm not in it at all, but I just fucking loved it. But (laughs) isn't it so beautiful, like, when you read something that you feel, even if it's not, you in that position but being a part of something where something is that is said like when I watched it that was the bit I found incredibly moving because you just thought of how boundless people's potential are if if you're not surrounded by all those oppressive factors so like even if you're in a a creative space where that is a sort of goal you'll always sort of end up coming against some person or something that is trying to construct it like this writer's room that I'm in like we're a, a fantastic group but there's a little bit of me that knows that once it then goes to 
the execs that all these fantastic ideas are going to be sort of squashed or changed, whether it's the script stage or the casting stage. Do you know what I mean? So I absolutely love that. Did you say to me, Susie, that that's in part what you thought Black Panther was about, was about an African country that hadn't been colonised? Yeah. And what could be without this erosion, this oppression, this criminalisation, this marginalisation and this demoralisation. It was really like, interesting because I lived in a space like that whilst I wrote it, which I know sounds... And it was kind of obviously like a false well, space. Wakanda. <coughs> huh? Canada. <laughs> yeah, I was in Canada. <laughs> they let you in and not me. Fucking pissed. I'm there, I'm there. <laughs> but, like, it I was... mean, that is the history of the world. <laughs> an uncolonised. Um, what I'm now going to say is going to be a massive disappointment to everybody. <laughs> It was an artist colony in the woods, in the middle of the woods in America. And obviously that's a totally, like, fictional and false space because it was being bankrolled behind the scenes by loads of really wealthy American philanthropists. But it didn't feel like that. It felt really <laughs> lovely. And uh, there was communal breakfasts and communal lunches. And I just happened to be in a gang that was mostly female. And I cannot tell you, living in a community of mostly female artists for eight weeks, the world felt really different like by week three you were like your whole thinking changed what felt possible changed the way you were speaking the language you were using how you felt about your body mm. and not to be looked at for that period of time like it was really profound and I had to come back from there when I finished the play I had to get straight back into New York for some meetings and I remember standing in the middle of Times Square and looking at all those billboards, and they're sort of 90%, you know, skinny naked chicks. And it was physically hard. I found the month Mm. after coming, like, so I sent the play in from that place. Then three days later, Weinstein broke. Then I was in New York, and then I came back to London, and I found it was really, like, mental health-wise, that was the hardest, like, two, three months of my life, because I could suddenly see it all, the capitalism and the patriarchy, Mm. and you're like, Jesus, it's really there, and there is no getting away from it. Sam, what's it like to live in that world all the time? (laughs) It just must be amazing. Peachy. (laughs) Do they give you a hat? No, seriously though, like, is there a sense where you just walk into rooms, like rehearsal rooms, and sort of there's someone who looks like you pretty much guaranteed to be directing? No, this this would be my second I'm a feminist, but um, I'm a feminist, but I sort of sometimes feel nostalgia for the bit before I got it when everything was easier and looked different because mm. it, you could sit back and enjoy the privilege without having to think too much about it. Mm. Yeah. Shit. Oh. My, my, <laughs> that's a mic drop right there. Oh, my God. That's a nice confession. It's a good confession, though. I'm not saying, no, I'm not, I'm not, because you never go back. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, you don't. It's like, yeah. it's like you've got... It's like, it's like those glasses in, in They Live. You know, yeah. you put them on and it says, eat food, consume drink. I was as excited by that middle monologue as you were, Lara. What do you say in your stage direction? There's no looking, there's only doing. Mm. Yeah. So, there's... Oh. That sounds like something Yoda would say. There's no try, only do. Yeah, do or do not, there is no try. Mm. We performed on the night Weinstein got arrested. Did you? That was, and, and, when, and when you said dismantle capitalism and overturn the patriarchy, it got the biggest cheer. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is really exciting. Right, so it got a laugh. <laughs> yeah, we did a laugh. It got a proper cheer. This is such a Me Too play, but you wrote it before Me Too. Before. Yeah. It, like, yeah, three days later it broke. And it was weird because I was in America and we were obviously talking every night and, you know, 30 artists having dinner together was in the air. 
We started the Guilty Feminist before Weinstein. There were so many projects where it was the zeitgeist. Something was moving and something was changing and something was happening. And there's a lot of art that's been responsive to me too and, and these things was absolutely valid as well. But it is interesting that so much was kind of bubbling up. So, Lara, when you said you came in, you sort of cried because you so related to the material and you were thinking about leaving. Was it in part in response to the power structures that you felt or just that you weren't giving, being given the material or both? Uh, all the time, yes. So, so Weinstein, sure, Weinstein. But that shit's been going on for years, and it's not just Weinstein. And I, I, oh, sure, yeah. The, even post Weinstein, the other day I went to an audition and walked in, and this guy was amazing. This guy said, "Ah, oh, I like your colour. Where are you from?" And I went, um, uh, "I'm Italian and Nigerian." He went, "Oh, sorry, I'm not hearing on you." And I was like, "Wow, this is amazing. Have you just done That's like all the things in one?" Was this in an audition? This was an was he a director or casting director? Director. Said, I like your colour. Like Where your are you colour? from? Where are you from? I'm not joking. Holy fuck. Yeah, and then, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not hitting on you. Fucking hell. Because obviously he got scared. I was like, oh, wow. oh God, I'm freaked out. How ridiculous. Ha- have you had that, Susie? Just sort of really inappropriate and just oh, yeah. uh, sh- oh, oh, offensive comments. Oh, God. <laughs> we do not have enough hours yeah. with this podcast <laughs> I, and I'm not even being dramatic like I tweet most of them you can read as they happen it's just rolling commentary it's like fucking CNN like <laughs> honestly I, I remember I got oh, I got picked up to, when I was filming this job not too long ago and I got in the car and I was getting picked up at like 5.30am so really early I got in the car with my hair like this which is a, a big afro and the, the guy I can't even stress how loud he was, but he just went, whoa, look at your hair. Oh my God, that's going to take hours, isn't it? It's going to take hours. It's just so big. It's going to take hours. And I was like, I haven't even done my morning shit and you're making this much fucking noise. I just didn't even know. I tweeted that, actually. I did, actually. Um, (laughs) But it just, that sort of thing happens all the time. We're like, oh God, I didn't expect you to be so dark. Or Like, I've had... God, I could go. There's on. a um, really good new flavour, which is using me too as like a route into yes. hitting on you. So I had a director the other day being like, the problem with this other director is he's like this all the time. Do you know what he's like? He's like this all the time. He's really like this. And I was like, wow, Just that's meta. For the listeners at home, <laughs> I just slightly Ella Sam is now West. feeling Samuel West up. It was his elbow. It was just his elbow. My hands Officer. are above the table. Yeah, it, it was, yes, you're on it. So, how can we take charge and author the story? Because that's what I felt when I watched the show. I felt it was like this, at first, that understanding that we all had, you know, when the audience saw this extract of being kind of caught in that trap and that conversation. And then so when it kind of went into these other places about domestic role play and a sort of Nirvana world in which women would be uh, freed from all this stuff and women of colour would be freed from all this stuff, as well as white women. I, I never know how to say that. Can I have a ruling on this? Go. Because sometimes you want to say women, and then you want to say, but women of colour have a harder time. Yeah. But you don't want to say, you know, the hard time white women have, and women of colour. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Like, how do as I in, say like, that? Separating women of colour and their womenness. People say now women and people of colour, and I see people on Twitter going, in fact, I've seen you on Twitter saying, 
Don't say women and people of colour. Oh, is that why you're talking I'm with? a woman. No, gender, I've seen it. It's come up a lot lately, not just you. Loads of women of colour have been going, please stop saying women and people of colour, like women of colour are not women. Yeah. Is there a form of words I'm meant to use or we could decide on now for the rest of the Let's internet? decide now. <laughs> I don't know. I think we should let Sam decide. Sam decide. Sam! 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 <laughs> Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. There is no Sam way out of this dilemma without me oh. crashing and burning. I'm going yeah, to really amplify the, the women's voices the and move sideways. <laughs> um, well, it's really hard. Terminology is really hard because I know a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with women of colour. Yeah. Like, I, so I think I don't love it. I, do, I don't love it. I did, to be honest. I don't, love it. I don't know when it got decided. No one, I, no one sent me the email. It's a very American. I didn't get. The, did you not get the Black Association email that says this is? We're not doing this. Always an American accent because. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, I do. I. <laughs> I. Uh, you're chuckling so hard. You know what I'm fucking talking about. Firstly, with, with people of colour and women of colour, I just sort of go for the juggling and say, just people who are not white. Just if you're not white, that's what we're talking well, about. Well, I put I that just... at one point in my book and the editor went, then you're defining everyone as mm. not what white. was your editor? Orbiting a white person. Uh, she was a Caucasian lady. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> but, <laughs> then, but, you know, but I didn't say it the whole time. I said women of colour, but at one point I thought specifically the point is that they're not white and that's why there's this extra oppression. She went, don't say non-white. I think she'd had a sensitivity read in the past. Yeah, the Riz, thing is, Riz Ahmed told me not to use non-white. So really? Thought, yeah, yeah, he just said it defines everybody. At, what a glamorous uh, person to have taught you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll take the note. Oh, I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good old Riz. Riz. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Well, that's what exactly what I mean. Riz, me and Riz Ahmed do not agree. Call me Riz. Let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> over lunch. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but no, um, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. So just say... So, okay, all right. Just well, say whether. Uh, so... <laughs> Brown chicks. It's an evolving conversation. What's really exciting as an occasional director is that seeing all-white casts now looks really odd. Mm, and, I agree. And five years ago, even, it, it wouldn't have done. And if you're trying to cast, as you must now, diverse uh, companies, then you and the casting director... I've just cast one. Uh, you and the casting director start talking about actors of colour, and that no longer means male actors. It just means, mm. I mean, in the context of what you've been saying, sorry, Riz, it means non-white actors, male mm. or female actors. And that's a useful shorthand. Mm -hmm. But I can't say anything more than that, really. No, best you don't. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> Stop there. Wise, wise. Um, no, but I, I absolutely hear you. Anyway, sorry, this is, can be completely derailed. Cab. I just want to say... <laughs> I just want to say, what can we do to take back the narrative more? Or as an ally, Sam, how can you ally for women to take back the narrative? Uh, given you are a feminist in a feminist space, I only know you because you listen to this podcast mm -hmm. and you have two daughters. Not that owning women should be the... <laughs> It's true, though. It's true that it's. it's I now can't I have daughters. I damned yeah, it when no. I hear I'm Matt a Damon say, "I had no idea women were people until I invented yeah. one." And uh, somebody, somebody pointed out. He said, "Now that I have a cat, I no longer run cats down in the street." <laughs> <laughs> um, so, ideas for taking back the narrative. I think there's a generational thing. So it's very interesting. We worked out earlier that we met each other for the first time. 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was a great, fun time. There's a reason, I think, that that all happened pre-Weinstein and there was a bubbling up, and I think it's because the people that have spent 10 years 
getting very tired, and I know this has been going on for centuries, but I think it is quite new that we are all now in positions or getting into positions of power in a way that hadn't previously been true in this industry. And I think that tipping point made it less scary because you go, fine, I'm not going to get employed by my three male bosses, but I've now got two female bosses mm. and they might re-employ me. I feel influence more than power. I feel I have influence. I don't feel I really have any power. That might is be... that about fear? Like, I think power is about fear. It's about when you get to not be afraid anymore. Oh. What is, I thought you meant line? structural power. What's the that's line what, you say? That's what it is. Only courage makes you... Money doesn't make you safe. Only courage makes you safe. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> you In your fucking play. Um, um, <laughs> you wrote I it. I think there's a thing about doing things and not being afraid. I that's think that's when line. you know you're in a position of power. Women spend a lot of time doing things because they're afraid mm. or not doing things because they're afraid. So I think that's the thing. Like, I was talking Which to somebody about this. Which has been coached into us, to be fair. Yes. But I'm t- I'm yeah. t- I'm, my daughter's really into the Wizard of Oz and I'm trying to teach her what courage is because the cowardly lion wants it. Mm. And there's a song at the moment saying, being brave and being scared look exactly the same. It's just that being scared, you give up. And the point about the cowardly lion is not that he loses his fear. Of course he's terrified, but he does it anyway. So I think we have to put women in positions of power where they're scared but allowed to, or encouraged to, supported to carry on. I mean, the simplest way is to let her run the Almeida. Hard oh. agree. Hard agree. Yeah, you can. I, I'd really like to see that. Mm. Would you like to want to build in? Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, there you are. Give me one. Someone give me one. Okay. I'll take this someone one. Give an, someone give her a building. Got a really nice some bar. The wine's all right. Some of our listeners must be in a position where they could certainly put you forward for that. I've got Orchestra. production skills. You know. Great. Okay, so the guilty feminist would like Ella Hickson to run a building. Yes. Uh, hashtag Ella run a building hashtag the writer hashtag the guilty feminist podcast done great done. super that will be sorted I by think, Tuesday I think the next artistic director of the National Theatre is not going to be male <gasps> really that's, that's my big dream I'd be very I'd be very surprised really yeah just like the, I mean it's going to be a long time before unfortunately in my case because I'd really love to uh, a middle aged white man plays Doctor Who again <laughs> It will um, never happen again. Not in so. my lifetime. Never. I think it'd be really old. Never. Well, I, I don't know. I, I'd be really surprised if the next artistic yeah. director no, of the it, it, is, yeah. is male. Yeah, I mean, based on the directors they've had, the safe money is on a man. <laughs> but so far. the zeitgeist might demand otherwise. But, but it's not just the zeitgeist. The most exciting artistic directors at the moment, um, Josie and Tamara Harvey and... Fluid and Inda Rubisingham. Um, Ella Hickson. Ella Hickson to, to be uh, uh, women. So, you know, give one of them the job. Absolutely. Where is that, Sam? Lara, what can we do to take control of the narrative? It's hard. I, would, I, I wonder if it's that. I mean, I would have previously to what you were saying before, I would say it starts with the children, but now I realise they actually take a long time to come to sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Refugees? <laughs> Refugees? <laughs> uh... So now I don't know. No, I, I, we're I, growing I a population gang. I think women need to believe. I really hate saying this because it sounds like I've. I just think we need to really, really believe in each other. And I'm not saying that I just, we've all been bitches. That's not what I'm, but the sisterhood is really fucking important. And it was in the writer, there's one moment where she talks about the liberation of two women making each other laugh and the freedom of that. Mm. 
and it's fucking beautiful, mm. and it's real, and just go in and breathe deep and take mm. as much fucking space as you need, because it's yours, and mm. just take it. <laughs> Lara, it's really odd you say that, because when I did the book tour, I would meet the people whose books were being signed after the event, and so many women who said to me, especially a lot of Asian women and queer women, actually, quite a lot of women who work in STEM, in science, oh, yeah. said, I'm the only woman in my space, or I'm the only... And they said, I end up feeling like the not fun one, because I'm always... Are you, do you feel that? Yes. Yeah. So I'm always the difficult one, the critical one, the one that's not taking this... And what they said to me was, on Monday, I remember, oh, no, I am fun! oh, no, I have got a sense of humour. Mm. Oh, no, I am funny. And so I realise what my next book is going to be called. It's going to be called In on the Joke. Because it's a privilege to be in on the joke. Mm. And you can only be in on the joke when people like you are being supported and not marginalised or dehumanised. It's a privilege to be in on the joke. And so we have to create spaces where we are in on the joke. question from the audience hello oh there we go um what's your name i'm tasha um i work in the museum sector and it's completely dominated by people identify as women and that's incredible it's a really nurturing space but we are still telling the stories of dead rich white men and it's like we can't galvanize ourselves to tell our own narrative in that space even when we have positions of power Essentially, we're a Trojan horse, and we just can't get out the horse. <laughs> so how do we? Oh. I said, you're in the Trojan horse, but you can't get out. Yeah. Is it locked on the inside, or...? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you guys, because you work in the theatre, and you, Susie, you're all in the theatre, and comedy tends to be, you do tell your own story from scratch. Mm. We are not beholden to Shakespeare in stand-up comedy. Thank God. <laughs> so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> you guys need to answer this. Who makes the decisions? Who's making the commissioning decisions? That's the section where there's a lot of men, actually. Well, there oh. we go. <laughs> there you are. It's, it's about money, right? Like, so those guys have a certain amount of money to spend every year, and they're selecting which three or four ideas that money is getting spent on. Precisely. Yeah, that's about taste and what will sell and what is appealing to a public being defined by a very specific set of values that are coming from a very specific set of people. Mm-hmm. And that's not the women's. Are thought. you saying... The capitalism is unavoidable. I'm saying, have you, <laughs> I'm have you got their number? Because if you do, I, I'm on it. <laughs> I mean, I'm only human. <laughs> <laughs> is it hard in here? I suppose in that case, it's pitching as a group of women who are actually going to have to execute this Ex- exhibition. Oh, execute. Execute. Execute the men. You <laughs> very handmaid's tale there really quickly. Well, really I was yeah. like, kill Shit. them. You just said kill them. Yeah, just kill them. And now the Me Too movement really has gone too far. Uh, they lined them up and shot them. <laughs> because they wanted to do an exhibition of Salvador Dali and frankly, fuck that they had it coming. Um, uh, uh, what? I got so excited. (laughs) I meant executors of the exhibition. You know, you have if you're going to have to curate it and put it together and sell it to the public. Yeah, could you pitch? You know, some things demonstrating the zeitgeist and demonstrating how much money there is now in women are thirsty. I say all the time, they're so thirsty. There's so little for us that it will make money. So I think 
now demonstrating the capitalist argument, if you can do that without arousing people, (laughs) is a good way forward because often that's what they care about. Basically, what you've got to do is pull out a Black Panther. So when people are like, oh, no, we always see diversity on screen, you just go, Black Panther, what? Sorry. Exactly. Moonlight. Moonlight. But also, one thing I would like to say is the investment banks. I did an event the other day for an investment bank. This day was particularly for, they call it returners. And what they do is they go out to recruit women who've uh, left the workplace because perhaps they've spent some years raising children or caring for an elderly relative, or they've had a sabbatical of some sort, and they put on days completely at the bank's expense that build confidence. You think, oh, God, I've lost all my confidence now, and I don't know, I'm out of the loop. But look at the skills you've got. Your time management skills have shot up because you've got two small children. Your negotiation skills are second to none. <laughs> Tell me about because it. Because you've got a toddler. <laughs> yeah. You think you've got fewer skills because you've, you, know, you don't quite know what's happening in the market. And that's absolutely not true. You can learn that again in a few weeks. They're paying for it all. And I was like, but what if they never come back to this bank? And they went, what does it matter? We just want more women in the talent pool. I said to them, but this breaks my heart because the arts is meant to be specifically about the exploration of the human condition. And over half that experience is female. Why are there not programs? You can do these things cheaply. Why are there not programs? Why is there not an appetite for it, a hunger for it? And what she said to me was, we know how much more money we make with a diverse workforce. This is not a bleeding hearts cause for us. Mm. We make more money. And, and so I said to her, would you do a project with the Guilty Feminist, which would be great PR for you, you pay for a returner's series of workshops for women in the arts. And she was like, oh yeah, let me go and talk to my boss about that because I want them to put that day on and I want them to come back in. I want them to workshop, network, rebuild their confidence and understand that if you're directing Hamlet from the same point of view again and again and again and again of the white straight male experience or the white bisexual male experience, which are the two that are allowed, (laughs) you are not seeing it from the point of view of a mother. You are not seeing it from the point of view of someone who's just nursed their father and their father's died in their arms. And that is different and the story will be different and more valuable tellings will be told. And it is a way to take back the narrative. So I really, really, really want to do a returner scheme. And if anybody is out there and listening and was interested in doing an arts returner scheme for women, especially who have taken time out for children, please get in touch. Ella... Do you have anything final that you would like to say? I was thinking about something along those lines that you were just talking about, which is, I think, the reason that a returner scheme works in a bank is because your outcomes, your targets are really identifiable. Profit is a very measurable thing. In the arts, the arts is run on voice and confidence and personal connection. It's run on a load of who likes who, who sounds good in a meeting... And it's run on like lots of ideas about taste. And I think the arts will almost be like one of the last things in a real sense to change because it's about narrative and it's about subjective narrative. And that's much, much, actually much, much harder to prove that female voices and that female stories are, you know, worthwhile in those quantifiable cases. Lara. 
Hello. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Final. Or, yeah, anything final you'd like to say that you, would, you feel like you've not left on the table and you'd like to? Oh, God. Um, or, or anything you'd like to plug? Any projects you've got coming up? No projects. I'm unemployed. Um, if <laughs> anyone would like to give me a job, I'll gladly take it. Um, Can I say how nice it was to do that scene again? Excuse I really me, you've interrupted me. Though. Excuse <gasps> me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that. I love you, Sam. I'm joking. I won't say that. Cut it out. <laughs> No. I'm joking. I, I, I actually don't have it. I've, I've been, it's been lovely to be here. I, I don't have any sort of final um, motto. Is there anything else you'd like to direct us to that you've been in or you'd like to be in? Anything I'd like to be in? I'd like to be Hamlet as soon as possible. Thank you. Well, the Globe are doing an all <laughs> women... Michelle Terry's just done. Uh, they're doing an all women of colour uh, Richard II. Are they? Yeah. 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 Andrew, Didn't invite okay. me. That's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, You'll... would you be interested in directing Lara as Hamlet? Fuck okay. yeah. I should be so lucky. Did you say fuck yeah? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> um, I have directed Hamlet before from a white, straight male perspective. But I, I mean, you know. We, I'll co direct it with change. you. <laughs> it's going to be fine. And I've played him. So uh, you, I know the play quite I well. I loved your Hamlet. Thank you very much. Yeah, he was great. I remember he had a hoodie. He did. Yep, I remember. <laughs> That's just to prove to Sam I saw it, and I'm not just doing that showbiz thing. <laughs> Of pretending I saw it. Okay, so Lara, you would like to play Hamlet? Yes, please, thank you. Um, and Sam's going to make that happen. I think if you're making that happen, we don't mind, because you will work, we know you will listen and work with her because you're a feminist, Sam. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to interrupt. <laughs> no, Sam was just saying how much he loved doing that scene with you again, Lara. So that's not... It was a lovely moment in so many levels. It was really, really nice to come back to that, really. It was, yeah... Thought we'd put it to bed, and actually, it was yeah. Can I say something? Can about I change that? my one last thing? Mm. If we have time. <laughs> you interrupted me. Oh, I mean, I know, but your people have been talking for ten thousand years, so it's fine. <laughs> now, <laughs> sorry, Ellie. My yes, one but... last thing, very quickly, is that I would encourage the men of the world to be mindful of the language that they are using when they are increasingly complaining about their female bosses. I have had like four or five instances in the last six months where men just think they are very particularly in a situation where a woman is newly like promoted above them and it was always the case that incompetence has been promoted oh. and that it's really hard you know and in, in, they're always like, in general it's a really good thing it's a really good thing but in this one particular case this woman is actually incompetent and da, da, da. and it's really interesting because it just keeps happening mm. like it happened once or twice and it's, as I say there's been like Six guys, all and lots of whom would count themselves as very sort of woke left wing, mm. and they go, "It's just this one woman in my one situation." And but it's they're really co-creating on. that narrative. Yeah, and yeah. it's insane, and they can't see that they're doing it, and the language is always like really. So that's my one thing. Great. And do you have anything to plug? Anything coming up that we should see? I do, but I can't say it out loud. Oh no, I do. No, I can. Wendy and Peter Pan, a feminist retelling of Peter Pan, uh, with Wendy at the lead. It's really good fun, and Tink's Wicked as well. It will be at the Lyceum. In Edinburgh this Christmas. Yeah, it was at the RSC a couple of years ago. We're doing a new version, directed by women, written by women, on at a big, yeah, theatre. And is it written written by you? Yeah, it's written by me. (laughs) When you (laughs) say (laughs) women... Just just a play. (laughs) Written by women, (laughs) i.e. you. Yeah, me. (laughs) Who's directing it? Uh, Ellie Road. Great, yeah. okay, so we'll have to come to Edinburgh to see that. And yeah. if you're listening in Edinburgh, get tickets for that ASAP yeah, this and Christmas. Come along. It's good fun. Samuel West, do you have anything to plug or any last thoughts? Yeah, am I allowed to? Uh, yeah, of course you are, don't you're wanna, a man. I don't want to go on. <laughs> um, the first thing is that that scene you just saw, when you see it printed, doesn't have the names of the characters because Ella doesn't want you to know that you're watching a scene. It's not until afterwards that you realise you're watching a, a play. 
And Lara and I read it, and uh, halfway into the second page, there's a really, really big speech, and they're just dashes for the people, and you work out who's talking in order. And Lara and I both said that we assumed that the first big speech was me. Mm. Oh. I was like, oh my God, this guy really gets it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Amazing character. <laughs> and, then, and then I say, uh, oh, I, I say I, and then there's another really long speech, and that's you as well. I remember you saying, just being on stage as a black woman with a middle-aged white man when I've got more to say than he has mm. feels really important. <laughs> yeah. It was really hard in the rehearsals. I kept saying to Blanche, the director, Blanche McIntyre. Uh, anyway, so I kept saying, am I being too loud? Is this, am I being too much? I just, so taking, that's what I mean by taking, I guess this is my last thought. Just, there was a day when I remember, I don't know why or how, but I guess it, it was the support of Ella and Blanche in the room, being like, it's okay, be as fucking loud as you want. It's fine, that's mm. what I've written, this is what it's about. And it just, the penny dropped, and I just kind of was like, I am no longer standing on the stage with a man who, you know, in terms of power dynamics, has an easier fucking ride. I'm no longer apologizing. I will shout at you, I'm angry. It's fine to be angry. And I just, I remember just being like, oh my God, my voice is so loud. <laughs> I'm huge. <laughs> and I don't want to say sorry for that anymore. And that's, yeah, I remember that real that's moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your second thing, Sam? The second thing is that um, we haven't really talked about theatrical form because it sounds a bit like a turn-off as a subject. But actually, when I was doing this play, I thought... I've never really been near the cutting edge of theatre, but I sort of feel like I can see it from here. And what Ella gives you in this play, along with a different narrative, is completely different narrative forms. Like every scene is explained by the one that's just gone before, or undermined by it. And the narrators are completely unreliable. And you use the word cubist. I mean, stuff is piled on top of each other and happens simultaneously. And it's really fucking exciting. And it's very not male. And I found myself mistrusting the idea of cause and effect or linearity and just thinking, why don't we tell more stories in circles? Why, mm. uh, uh, Lucy Preble, um, who wrote Enron, which I was also lucky enough to be in. Who's uh, the funniest person on Twitter, by the way? She's, she's very she's funny. Somebody, <laughs> she's very um, great. Somebody died and uh, she quoted something from a Philip Roth novel saying, um, reasons are for books people don't have them and I thought yeah this whole idea of character having to make sense yeah that feels kind of male now mm. can't we just sort of be a mess and it was really exciting I don't know where to go from here but the thing that I would say most excited me and most excited me talking about the play afterwards to people particularly young women who were writing was what might happen next mm. Yes, I agree. One reason I want more women to see this play is to be inspired by that subversive use of form and the Trojan nature of some of the themes. Um, do you have anything to plug? Oh, I do. My partner is a writer called Laura Wade, and she has written an amazing new adaptation of an unfinished Jane Austen, which sounds kind of safe and, and bonnety, but it isn't. It's, um, it's, very, it's very Pirandellian. It's an unfinished work by Jane Austen called The Watsons, and it goes completely nuts, and it starts rehearsing on Monday, so I must go home. And it opens at the Minerva Theatre at the end of October, so come and see it, because it's going to be great. Wonderful. We love bonnets. The suffragettes wore them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Susan McComa, Hi. do you have anything else to say slash plug? As a writer, now, 
what I've been really attacking on screen is, you know, the sort of rules you get told, oh, if you're going to write a show, particularly I write comedy, if you're going to write a comedy, this is the rules and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm now questioning everything, basically. Like, why, why do characters have to have, like, an, you know, this A story, B story, C story, and then, like, why? Like, why? Who decided that? It was probably a man. And um, it reminds me of this uh, Rash Dash show. They're a fantastic feminist theatre company. They had a show called Two Man Show, which was on at the, in Edinburgh, I think, last year or year before. And it was so beautiful because they were talking about language and the words that we use and not finding women, not having the words to express themselves or not having the language because who invented that and it was just a real moment where I was like fuck like even the fucking shit that I'm so not I feel so like not elegant on this particular podcast but I was like it's so interesting that the very basis of language like who who decided that who came up with that and I thought it was really beautiful and really poignant and so ever since then I've been sort of challenging uh, that which had yeah and are we allowed to talk about your short film oh yeah we are Yes, yeah, so I've written and produced a short film for Sky, which is going to be on television on the 25th of September, so next Tuesday. So by the time this comes out, it'll be online. Um, it's called Love the Sinner, and it was directed by a wonderful director called Jennifer Sheridan. And uh, yeah, it's my first written bit of uh, television, and I'm really excited about it. Am I allowed to say I've had a sneak peek? Yeah, you have. Yeah, it's on. really, really good, and it's uniquely a story that Susan could tell, and it's inspired by your childhood. Yeah. And you play a mother that may or may not resemble your own mother. It's definitely my mum. Right, sure. <laughs> um, I play my mum and she left me a voice message yesterday and it opened with, Suzanne, you bastard! <laughs> <laughs> Have we been listening to the Guilty Feminist Review? Yes, guys, Susan McCormick and our very special guests, Anna Hickson, Laura Rossi and Samuel West. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe and Sally and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Is it all right just to say, are you comfortable holding mics? Yeah, do you just want us to hold them? If yeah. you hold them and then we sit more of an, oh. a slight horseshoe, yeah, and then Sam, you go back a bit. Because I feel like I can't quite no, see no, Laura and check in with her. Yeah, yeah. There we are. And <laughs> as covered before, women are very empathetic and we need to see eyes. Um, <laughs> I just need yeah, to, yeah, yeah, do you see what I mean? So that we're more of a, yeah, uh, I should have said trade before you. Trojan horseshoe. Hello. We are now in a Trojan horseshoe. That's right. 